host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment providers. Today, we are speaking with Andrew Bort, who is the Executive Director of the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. And we were talking about ways to improve group therapy delivery so that it increases patient engagement, patient outcomes, and ultimately patient referrals and reimbursements. Um, so tying it all together, bringing together the clinical outcomes with the financial results that allow us to continue to help more and more patients. Before we get into that, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So full disclosure, I am a part owner of the Institute along with Andrew. And just giving you some background, we're going to start by painting a picture here. So imagine walking into a group therapy session and the therapist, the clinician, the counselor does a standard check-in. So they go around the room one by one and ask the patients how they're doing. While most sessions are usually only 50 minutes, they're not even 60, right? Because they've got a 10-minute smoke or whatever break built in there. And so each patient, assuming that we have 12 in the room, is getting less than five minutes per session to talk or to engage. And we know from research, as we'll dig into on this particular interview, that if patients aren't engaging in change talk and if they're not actively part of the, the learning and the therapeutic process, it is not likely to have a successful outcome. So this is something that I saw again and again as I am going into different facilities and watching different groups. So I saw this real need to bring stronger delivery into the behavioral health space, particularly from a group therapy setting. What's really happening is a lot of patients aren't engaging. They're checking out, they're daydreaming, they're coloring. Uh, they're not, not paying attention because they're not engaged and there's not a reason for them to be engaged in the therapeutic process because just one person's talking at a time and it's a round robin kind of group therapy delivery. Even if we look at some therapists that are integrating Yalom's strategies, you know, there's a little bit more engagement here, but it's still maybe involving only, only two or three of the patients out of 12 in a particular therapeutic setting. And then on top of that, there is a lack of recovery skill building. So what's often seen in the therapeutic process is a lot of rapport building. We all know the importance of the therapeutic alliance, but the reality is that the therapist is not going to be present after 30 days or six weeks of programming or whatever the length of the program is the patient's recovery is dependent on what they're able to do outside of the therapeutic setting without the therapist there as a recovery support. So patients must be given the tools to be successful outside of the therapeutic session. And that's often something that a lot of therapists have not been trained on. So these are the core goals that we looked at when we started the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. We really wanted something that maximize patient engagement so that everyone was engaged in that therapeutic healing process and no one was checking out. And there are very, very specific concrete techniques that can be used to do that throughout the entire session. And then on top of that, the skill building component. So making sure that we're not just talking to patients about something, we're not talking to them about a skill, we're making sure that they're actually able to do it. We don't want them to know what a bike is, we want them to be able to ride the bike. We don't want them to know what swimming looks like. We want them to know how to swim. We don't want them to know what recovery looks like or what it sounds like. We want them to actually be able to live an active life in recovery, and that requires skill building. 
So really excited to have Andrew join me here in this conversation and talk about how we can improve these outcomes that also allow us to build better programs, that build more sustainable programs, and that make us more successful overall. So with that, let's jump in. All right, everyone, really appreciate you joining us here today. So this is going to be a slightly different format than our usual kind of question and answer back and forth of their various episodes, just because Andrew and I work really closely together for the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. So I just wanted to start off with some reasoning about why uh, we started the Institute and why Andrew was the right person to partner with as we started this venture as many of you listeners know, on the consulting end, as well as the marketing end of Circle Social, I and other people in the company spend a lot of time in group therapy sessions. And we are, we are watching group therapy sessions with almost every client that we have. I've seen over 100 at this point over the past couple of years. And there is often a very clear lack of training for therapists and counselors and clinicians in terms of delivery in a group setting. When we look at licensing programs, when we look at graduate programs, there's a whole lot of theory and there's a lot of knowledge and there's a lot of expertise around that knowledge. But knowing something and being able to do it are two very, very different things. And so as some of you might be aware, uh, before I got into behavioral health a decade ago, I was a teacher, teacher trainer, and school administrator as well for a decade around the world. And so I was able to clearly see a lot of these gaps in delivery that's happening within the therapeutic process that are then leading to less than ideal patient outcomes. And so as I saw this again and again, I really realized that no one had seemed to have been able to get a handle on this. I hadn't seen any training programs instituted. I hadn't seen a really, really effective delivery of group therapy in large providers and small providers. It didn't matter if it was a provider with low resources providing therapy to those with Medicaid or facilities charging $70,000 a month for very high-end services the type of therapeutic delivery in the group setting was almost the same in every single facility that I've been in. And so it just occurred to me that you know, if we wanted this to change and really lead to improvement here, we were going to try and make that initiative happen ourselves. And it's been an, a wonderful journey so far. I mean, we've really had good experiences. The therapists, the counselors, the clinicians have been extremely positive about the results that they're getting with patients. The patients that we talk to also get phenomenal results and suddenly they're engaged in their therapeutic process. They're seeing more results for themselves than they have seen previously. And so we wanna go over today, what do we see in the therapy sessions that has opportunity for better outcomes? than what's often being done or treatment as usual. And then obviously getting to know myself and Andrew and, and just our experience and background. So with that, Andrew Bort is our executive director. He is the one behind the scenes and also at the front, right? Running everything for the Institute and making sure that we're servicing our clients and servicing patients and growing the program and making it better all the time. So with that, I just wanna kick it over to Andrew if you just wanna introduce yourself a bit. Sure. Nick, thank you so much for having me on. So I began my career as an educator and trainer back in 2008 in California before the economic crash, which prompted me to move abroad and work while I waited for things to settle down in the States. Well, there I continued my education, obtaining my master's degree in education in 2015 and certifications through Columbia University Teachers College and Cambridge University, among others. I have held the roles of center manager, area director, director of training and development, head of academics, curriculum design, and I have extensive experience in engagement strategies in the neuroscience of learning, as I have successfully led groups of learners all ages and situations, from university to professionals and Fortune 100 business trainings towards a common goal. When I got your call, I was very, very excited about your proposal and impressed with the program. I mean, beyond the chance to work together again, I knew immediately that we had an opportunity to bring meaningful change here, not just for patients and clinicians, but society as a whole. So currently we have more than 20 million people in the United States that are struggling with substance use disorder. And for those who seek treatment, 85% relapse and return to use within one year. It's a big number. And for those incarcerated for drug offenses, almost 77%, 76.9 to be exact, are rearrested within five years. I mean, based on the National Institute for Drug Abuse's most recent estimate, it costs the United States 600 billion annually. So we need to do better and we can do better. And one place to start is 
with the delivery of group therapy. And as excited as I was when I first got your phone call, when I actually saw the training in action, I was blown away. And so the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapies workshop is similar in design to some of the best in the world. And I'm speaking specifically here of the Disney Trainer Program, the Management Edge through Disney University, the Stephen Covey Seven Habits workshop, if anyone's taken that, and the Cambridge CELTA course. So I don't think it's a coincidence that those certification courses I just mentioned were some of the most engaging and hands-on that I've ever had the privilege to be a part of, but they were also the most challenging, rewarding, and difference-making for me as an individual. After completing them, I walked away with skills that made me more effective and efficient as a leader, trainer, and facilitator, and that gave me increased job satisfaction. Everything about work became more enjoyable, and it was apparent among my staff and the students at my campuses as well. Awesome. So just giving everyone a little bit of background, there's a number of similarities between us. And I think why we ended up partnering on this particular organization and project, but both of us have a recovery background, right? So both of us have gone through treatment for substance use disorder in the past. And I think both of us had a similar experience uh, personally, just before we even looked at it professionally in terms of opportunities for improvement. But I don't know if you want to speak a little bit to your, your experience in recovery. Absolutely. So my experience in recovery was a little bit of a mixed bag. So I had a wonderful therapist, you know, and I I developed fantastic relationships and and support in some of the groups that I attended. But my experience in in group therapy was absolutely painful. And you know, all the you know, this already, but for your listeners, I do have ADHD. And I don't do well in situations where I need to sit and listen to others talk about something, especially if I have no buy in or if I don't have a good reason to do so, in my, in my opinion. In some cases, I had no idea what the topic of the session even was. It was kind of a group-led, how's everyone doing today sort of chat. So my knees were bouncing. You know, I was imagining all the ways I could run serpentine through the room and do a shoulder roll out the window and just break free from the whole experience. But the reality is, is there are people like me in groups all over the country, just like there are people who've never graduated third grade or fifth grade, and, you know, people from different cultural backgrounds, it, th- that's, that's one of the biggest areas of opportunity here is it, a cookie cutter delivery is insufficient to meet the needs of the diverse populations that we see in groups day to day. One group is not the same as the next group. And so just having a curriculum is not enough. Yeah, that's 100% for sure. There is such a massive difference between, again, knowing something and being able to execute it on it appropriately. And, you know, the example I always give is like making coffee or Starbucks. I mean, you can go into a Starbucks, you see how it runs, you see what happens there, how they serve customers, how they make the coffee. That doesn't mean you can take Joe's coffee shop on the corner and suddenly build a multi-billion multinational brand because knowing something and being able to do it and execute it on it consistently at a high level time and time again is very, very different than knowledge. And that's a a key thing that we'll kind of talk throughout this podcast is there's this massive gap between both knowledge for therapeutic delivery, but also the knowledge and skills that are needed for recovery and being successful in recovery. It's, It's different to know it than it is to be able to do it. And then one thing else that both of us have in common, and I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because we went through, so we both worked at Disney together in Shanghai when we were in China. And so both of us became certified Disney trainers there. We went through the seven habits training, Stephen Covey Institute there. So you just want to talk a little bit about your, your corporate experience? Yeah, it was through my time at Disney that, you know, I really, for me, I just, I, I feel like they had such a phenomenal training program. And that's one of the things that I have, I have very fond memories of working there. And that's just because they, they invested so much in their staff. Like you could really, really feel that they cared. And, you know, as far as, as far as the corporate trainings go, it it was phenomenal to me that some of the same strategies that they would use, I mean, whether we were talking about uh, how to communicate with different types of personalities or the best way to hit targets is they would present the ideas in such a way that they were super engaging. You know, everybody wanted to be there. They wanted to be a part of the training. And you'd walk away from their trainings with skills that you could implement the very next day. It wasn't this didactic model of facilitation where here's a bunch of documents to read or you sit here and listen while I tell you what to do. That wasn't good enough for Disney. They wanted to see 
in action that you could do these things. And so they would present opportunities for you to practice while the trainer was in the room. So the trainer could then give feedback. So they were confident when you left that you would be ready to implement whatever initiative they were rolling out. And I think that, that, that that's, a, that's a big deal. Disney in really, really invested in us and you could see the result from that. Right, because what they do is effective. One of the biggest issues that we deal with, whether you're looking at corporate training, standard educational delivery or therapeutic delivery is, you might have someone that's a total expert in their area. Maybe it's an expert a math teacher that knows math inside and out, or a therapist that understands cognitive behavioral therapy inside and out, or someone that speaks English and knows English, right? But there's a massive difference between that and teaching someone math or teaching someone how to use CBT skills or teaching someone to speak another language. And that's, I think, what Disney and Stephen Covey and all these other trains really bring to the fore and what you and I align on so much when it comes to effective pedagogical practice is you have to get your participants, your students, your patients to be able to do it effectively. And that's very, very different from being able to know it. It's just like if you're trying to teach someone to swim, you said, okay, well, this is how you swim and you show it to them and then tell them to go jump in the pool. I mean, they're going to drown knowing how to do it and actually being in the water and doing it are two very, very different things. And so I think that advantage was just huge for us. Do you want to talk a little bit about that connection? So when you first got into this, you're coming from a a pedagogical training perspective. And how have you seen that translate into the therapeutic setting? Well, I mean, as as far as in terms of patient engagement, like the biggest area of opportunity I've seen, it, it comes in terms of patient engagement. Okay. And so one thing from a pedagogical standpoint that we have to understand is, do you understand is not enough. But as far as, you know, we, we need to understand that the, the first prerequisite for learning or growth to occur is conscious attention, okay? And so when I'm thinking from a pedagogical point of view, how do I get this diverse group of, of learners to, to engage and to participate and to, and to have buy-in? That's one thing that I, I just, I did not see when I first came into the behavioral health space, you know, specifically talking about group therapy. So engagement was really lacking. And I think I know that you mentioned this too, but between the two of us, we've observed well over a hundred groups, some at Medicaid facilities, some at high-end resorts with all the bells and whistles, regardless of which ones we're talking about, patients were constantly disengaged. You know, when I observed, uh, I like, when I observe, I like to bring a timer so I can see how often patients get to speak if they do at all. And as you're well aware, it's incredibly common to go through an entire session with some patients not saying a single word. Most patients speak less than three minutes over an hour. And sure, there are some who, you know, like me, when I was in therapy, love to talk and will take over the group whatever chance I get. But most don't. Passively sitting and listening or maybe listening, because we must remember, we we don't know what's actually going on inside someone's head. It's impossible to determine without them producing something, you know, whether it's spoken word, writing or anything else. The reality is most patients are zoning out. Passively sitting and maybe listening does not equal engagement. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if we think of the typical group therapy session that we watch, it's a lot of the therapist talking. It's a lot of check-ins and chat going around in a circle. And that's one person talking at a time. As you've mentioned, if we've got 12 people in the group, even if they speak evenly, that's only five minutes of talk time per person. It's just not effective. And so we see people slouched over. We see people, you know, in flip flops and sweatpants with their feet up and their hood over their head or daydreaming or just scribbling away on their coloring books. I mean, you can clearly see that they're not engaged and there is no attention. So as you mentioned, if there's no attention, there is no learning. And it's more than just that. It's also when you think in terms of of time management and is this time valuable? I mean, I I know depending on the facility, you can actually put a price on how how much that time is worth. But if you have a session topic, regardless of what it is, I mean, it can be breaking down goals, setting boundaries, epigenetics. It doesn't matter if you have an hour for that session and you have a topic, but it takes 45 minutes to get through the check in. You're not going to finish. You're not going to do anything meaningful with any topic in 15, the 15 minutes you have left. Right. So I think, think later on, we'll probably walk through a couple engagement techniques for, for people, because obviously it's great that we want to highlight some 
opportunities for improvement that I think are very clear within the field. But then we'll also walk through some examples of how to make it better and hopefully things that people can take away and start implementing tomorrow, you know, just to make their, their group sessions better. Something else I would comment on too is obviously this is really important for patient outcomes. If patients aren't paying attention, if they're not engaged, if they're not motivated, they're they're not learning and they're not going to be as likely to be successful in their recovery. But this also has a bottom line impact, right? So the better you do from a patient outcome standpoint, the more referrals you're going to get, the more people are going to want to come to your program. But also, I mean, engagement is just huge. Customer satisfaction, patient satisfaction is a huge factor when it comes to the way that people interact with a facility. And I think we've seen that fairly often is when we talk to patients and say, well, what did you get out of this program? They'll say, well, I like the people, you know, or the food was really good. And so for us, there's a gap. And has that created patient satisfaction? Sure, it has, right? But is it also leading to patient outcomes? And that's often a big question mark. And so we want to make sure that both are happening. So the patients don't talk about your food. They talk about their experience in the group therapy session is really what we want. Because when people in the community or referral partners hear that they had a lot of value in their group therapy, that's when you're going to get referrals, right? If someone says, oh, hey, yeah, they had great food, or I really like the people there, that's not going to drive referrals in the same way as saying someone who says, I had such a good experience, I learned so much, and I feel successful in my recovery because of what I got out of these groups, that's going to drive your, your bottom line, as well as the positive patient outcomes. And another thing I think is is lacking at the moment is skill building. Okay, so I would say sorely lacking. And I think a big reason here is a lack of understanding when it comes to the difference between knowledge and skill in general. In fact, if you take CBT groups, I bet if you ask the majority of clinicians uh, that are providing skill building in their groups, they, they think they are when they actually aren't. So we, we see this all the time, okay? Or we say this all the time. You, you, can't, you, can look, you can't learn to ride a bike, type on a keyboard, swim, or any other skill by reading it in a book or watching a clinician write it on the board. So you need practice. And I can give you an example of that with I statements. Anyone can create an I statement in isolation, but that doesn't mean they've mastered the skill or even understand the purpose. So sitting down with a worksheet like in grade school and transforming a pre-existing accusatory statement into an I statement or, or doing it verbally, if maybe you're not the best reader, it doesn't mean that that same person will be able to complete the task if they have their significant other screaming in their face, right? Which is more likely when they actually leave treatment. After all, you know, the purpose of I statements is to diffuse conflicts, prevent escalation, and communicate effectively concerns, feelings, or needs, right? So a much more effective form of practice would be to create dialogue cards or scenarios that mirror those real-life conversations patients might be having once they leave treatment. Patients can role play uh, and will need to create I statements on the spots under various conditions or, or um, situations. And they don't need to just do this once, but again and again and again with different partners. So the responses will be spontaneous, just like in real life. Definitely. I think on that skill building portion, it's the biggest gap and the main reason that we started building the Institute and the trainings around what the Institute delivers. Because we see therapists, clinicians, and counselors that are, are very good at building therapeutic alliance, which we all know is, is absolutely critical. That is the foundation that has to be there for successful therapy to really occur. And so they do that part, and that's great. But then there's not the next step, which is also really critical in terms of helping them being able to do it. And so when we think, of, go back to our swimming example, if I built up a lot of trust with you and I built up your self-confidence and say, okay, I think you're ready to swim, jump in the water and go, and you've never swam before, you're going to drown again, right? So we have to get in the water with people after we've built up the confidence, after we've built up the trust, we're in the water, we're practicing with them again and again. And as we always ask the, the therapists and the participants in the trainings, is once enough? Can I just do this once? And the answer is, of course not, because real learning, when you're thinking of muscle memory, when you think of procedural learning overall, and that's what we're really trying to maximize is procedural learning. It is through repetition and through feedback in the moment that allows someone to achieve a high level of skill and mastery. So Andrew, can you talk a little bit more about maybe procedural learning or often we'll refer to as unconscious learning and how that affects a patient's ability to achieve recovery? So procedural learning is one of the uh, pathways in the brain for which you know, human beings learn. And, and the easiest way to explain this would just, I guess, 
ask your listeners, you know, have you ever planned to pick something up after work, but you got lost in thought and ended up pulling into your driveway? So my guess is yes, because we ask that question all the time and almost everybody says yes. And so your brain uh, has, you've gone on autopilot, okay? You're zoning out and your brain does that for a reason. So the brain takes up only 2% of the body's mass, but uses 20% of its energy. And conscious thought, which originates from the prefrontal cortex, uh, is the most energy intensive form of thought. And so the brain looks to limit this. And it does that by creating unconscious automated processes. It's the same thing, the examples that we used before, like typing on a keyboard. You really have to pay attention to where everything is until one day you've done it so many times that there's a click and all of a sudden your brain can do it automatically. It's the same with conjugating verbs, right? It's like, I was at the store. I will go to the store, right? You don't have to consciously think about what verb do I need to use? But if you ever have learned a second language, you know, later in life, you'll probably remember that actually you you did have to pay attention for a very long time. You know, what's the word I need to use or what's the correct conjugation uh, until it becomes procedural. And so these unconscious automated processes is is how humans are designed in order to learn to save energy. Right. And so this applies to every skill that that we know how to do. And that includes recovery capital skills as well. So it's really important for patients in recovery and for clinicians to understand that this is possible because it does happen all the time. But CBT skills or uh, recovery capital skills in general, they, they do need practice and not all practice is created equal. And so it's really important that clinicians uh, arrange deliberate practice sessions for their patients to help move those thought patterns and behaviors to become unconscious automated processes. Like we don't want a patient who's quick to anger to have to stop and think about what to do if they get upset outside of therapy. We want them to have so much practice in therapy that they go right into deep breathing or whatever other uh, recovery skill they've practiced without even thinking about it. It becomes their automated thought pattern. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, I think, one of the the primary areas that we're really training on through the Institute is can your patient survive outside in the real world without you? And they have to, because they're only going to be with you for 30 days or six weeks. It's usually a short time frame in terms of intensive therapies. And so how are they going to achieve recovery and be successful in recovery using what you've given them? And just having an alliance with you is not enough because that alliance is no longer there once they've left treatment. And this is where right. a lot of people get stuck. I think it's also kind of a, a misconception that this idea that processing happens in a vacuum. Patients can absolutely process past experiences and tough emotions while they're planning and practicing for a better future. Yes, yes. And what I would add, I think a point of confusion often is processing is a skill set, right? Because again, are we going to have difficult situations in our lives? Are we going to recall traumatic memories in our lives after we leave the group session? And the answer is absolutely. Of course, that's going to happen. So these are skills. It's not a, it's not a co-occurring event where you're working with a guide or the therapist or someone else within the the group therapy um, session to process this emotion in the moment. And then it's a one and done, right? That's not how it works. What we really need the patient to do is be able to do that on their own. So yes, work with them and help them through maybe a difficult emotion or a difficult experience or a traumatic event and teach them how to process that event but they need to be able to do that themselves. And the same goes for self-compassion. You can't just teach them to love themselves in the moment in therapy. They're gonna have events in their life. They're gonna have people that are negative. They're gonna have failures on the outside. Have you equipped them with the skill set so that they can then on their own deal with that failure or on that own deal with that negative information coming from maybe people who are very close to them? So everything really comes down to a skill set. And that's what we really try to break down for people say, hey, what is what are the components of this skill? And then this will move right into objectives. How do we make sure that what we're providing in session is actually being learned and is actually demonstrably being able to be done by the patients. So do you want to talk a bit about objectives? Uh, okay. So objectives is, is a big one. Okay. And the reason why I, I believe objectives are so important is because so much of the group is contingent on the objective. Uh, le- let me start with a story here. You've heard this, but maybe your listeners will appreciate it. So I was 26 and maybe I was 27. 
I'd recently been promoted to center manager by, by uh, our very strong regional vice president. Uh, there were three days left to hit a target, which I, I was off five by four, four or five contracts. And I get a phone call from our RVP asking what my plan was. I said, well, you know, the weather, it, it looks like it's going to be in our favor. So I hope we get a lot of show ups on that. She's like, uh, 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 let me stop you right there. Hope is not a strategy. It was earth shattering to me. I didn't want to hear that, but she was absolutely right. Hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy in the case of hitting a sales target. And it certainly isn't when you're responsible for the growth and progress of a room of diverse people. While it is true that on occasion people will have aha moments in therapy, you can't start a session expecting or hoping it will happen. So here are the questions that every clinician should be asking themselves before a group session. The first one is, what do I want my patients to be able to do by the end of this session? How will I know if they've been able to reach that goal is the second one. This is our measurable, right? Number three, how does this goal connect to successful recovery? Why are we doing this in the first place is another way to say that. So I think clinical directors, executives, owners, anyone who's probably listening to this show who wants to drive positive patient outcomes, they would probably be shocked if they went into their facilities today and asked their clinicians to answer those questions. But these questions are paramount when it comes to the purpose, process, and payoff of a session. They address the whys and the hows. Now, I realize all facilities are different. You know, some have topic sheets, others have proprietary curriculums, others spent thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars on established curriculums that are held in high regard across the behavioral health space. If I spent that much money on a curriculum, I would hope it would be enough. But there's that word hope again. So, Nick, I did some digging, you know, in pre preparation for this interview. I found I found uh, a curriculum that's held in very high regard across the industry. And I found an objective from that curriculum, or I should say objectives. And I, I want to read it to you. OK, this is uh, from one of their sessions. And keep in mind, this is addressed to the patients. After participating in part one, you will be able to understand how addiction affects people's thinking, understand how triggers can lead to relapse identify, there's a good word, different types of triggers, understand how to diffuse triggers, understand how to avoid triggers, understand visualization exercises, and understand how thought stopping can help prevent thoughts from becoming triggers. Now, I see a number of problems with this. First, there are seven targets here, only one of which is measurable. Okay, so the word understand, uh, the word the word appreciate, realize, see, these are all passive words that have no demonstrable component. Go into a room of 20 people, explain a concept that is probably above their level and ask everybody if they understand and see what happens. You're gonna get mm -hmm, a lot of people shaking their head. Nobody wants to be the one that doesn't understand when the whole rest of the room does in theory, but the idea is the same. We can't really know what patients understand unless they produce something tangible that we can see. So words like identify, refrain, produce, describe, create, organize, modify, these are words that indicate a show of understanding, not a guess of understanding. So let's take the one objective that is uh, demonstrable, which is identify different types of triggers. How? Let's take it like this. Okay, by the end of this session, patients will be able to identify different types of triggers by creating a multi-tiered response plan to common triggers that include avoidance, visualizations, and thought and thought stopping. So depending on the length of the session, this is probably still too much. You know, visualization and thought stopping exercises are skills which need repeated practice. It would be more conducive to break these into four separate sessions than it would be to just do one. But Nick, it gets worse because after the objective, the curriculum goes into a series of question and answer worksheets. And in fact, throughout the entire session, there's only one practice exercise, but it's not even demonstrable. It has patients visualizing in their mind. And again, we don't know what they're actually thinking. Now, I'm not saying that this curriculum or any curriculum is bad. This is the most important thing I have to say. I mean, in fact, there are some fantastic questions throughout this document that can be used for some incredibly meaningful growth opportunities if executed correctly. But that's just it. Curriculums are frameworks. It's about what you do with them that counts. It's about who delivers them. 
If I weren't trained in effective delivery or facilitation, I would probably think that just sitting there and reading through those one by one and having patients answer and follow along one at a time would be enough, but it's not. It's not enough to effectively engage or meet the needs of diverse groups, and there isn't nearly enough deliberate practice. And if I were an executive who spent thousands or tens of thousands of dollars on this curriculum for my facility, it's understandable that I might think it's enough, but it's not. And the current relapse statistics prove that. I, I love that because we see it all the time, right? I mean, we'll ask when we observe a therapy session, we'll talk to the clinicians afterwards and say, well, you know, did your patients actually get it? Were they able to do what you're teaching? And their answer is always, yes. They're like, oh yeah, of course. I'm like, well, how do you know? How do you know? And they're like, oh, <laughs> how do well, you know? you know, I know, I know my patients. I know Steven, I know Sarah. I, I could see in their eyes that they got it. And then- uh -huh. We'll go to the patients, right? And we'll say, okay, so let's say we did I statements. Good example there. And we'll talk to the patient and be like, oh, well, can you give me an I statement? And they'll say something like, well, I feel angry when my husband makes me wait for him. I'm like, well, so right there, we have three different problems in that I statement where it was not formulated correctly, right? So the therapist is thinking that they understood. The patient also thinks that they understood, right? They think that they're using an I statement because they use I feel, but they have obviously missed the point that you can't be blaming in an I statement, that you're taking responsibility for your own feelings, that you're communicating positively in an assertive way, what your feelings are and what action someone takes that has you feeling a certain way, right? So there, there are these components of I statements that are important that have to be spelled out to patients in a therapeutic process and then practice consistently. And if the therapist in this particular example had actually had them practicing, they would have seen that. They would have seen that the patients are not formulating them correctly. And this is what we're talking about by demonstrable, right? If it's not visible to you in some kind of performance-based way, whether that's through verbal or them creating something like a, a relapse prevention plan that you can physically see and critique, then you cannot know that your patients have actually gotten what you want them to get out of that particular session. So that those components I think are so, so important and, and very often missed within the, the current therapeutic delivery in, in a large large percentage of treatment providers today. A very, very high percentage. You know, and something I would add there, or maybe an example I would give is, we'll see a lot of psychoeducation. And Andrew, you mentioned the buy-in component of how does this connect to my recovery? So an easy one that we've seen in every single curriculum that I've ever looked at is the genetics component. And so depending on the provider, some of them will say genetics is like 10% of addiction. Some will say it's 80% of addiction. Usually most are somewhere around like 50%. It doesn't really matter what the number is that they're, they're training or they're teaching. But what's happening most of the time when you talk to the patients is they go, oh, well, I was just told that genetically I'm different from everyone else. And so my understanding is that I'm permanently broken and I can't do anything about my addiction. That's the message that a lot of patients are taking away from that psychoeducational session. So why are we talking about it? How is that valuable to the patient? Whereas what needs to happen is you go in and you say, okay, we're going to talk about genetics today. And we're going to talk about how certain genetic predispositions might predispose us to certain behaviors, addiction being one of those. Now, what does this mean for us? And so talking to the patient saying, well, can we use or drink in the same way that other people do based on our genetic profiles? Yes or no? Well, no, right? So now it makes sense. I was like, okay, I understand why my friend can use and drink and go out to bars and not have problems, but I do. Also, obviously only a portion of this is genetic. So there's all this huge other portion here, whatever percentage you're looking at. Can people find recovery? Yes. Do they find recovery every day? Yes. We see it in our programs, right? So you're throwing these questions to the patients and it's starting to get them to make sense of why the heck you're talking about this. And so then it starts to make sense to them say, oh, okay. So now I know two things that are valuable to me in my recovery. One, I have a predisposition that means I'm different from other people and I'm going to have more challenges in this. So I need to be factoring that in when I think about using and not using in my own recovery. And then two, there's hope. 
everyone has found recovery and there's all these things that I can change. There's all these things that I can affect in my life. And so those two pieces of information provide buy-in and they provide understanding so that the patients really know what to do with the information you're giving them versus just throwing it out there and then them walking away with this sense of defeat and this sense of fatalistic approach to life because they think that they're, they're broken and they can't change now. You're absolutely right. And I also think, I mean, it's so important to clearly state the objective in the beginning of the session and immediately connect it to that recovery. I mean, there's so many different ways that you can approach the topic of, of you know, genetics or epigenetics, right? There's the way that's just like, okay, I'm going to read this definition to you out of the book and everyone just is kind of staring in, into space. Or, you know, we can look at how genetics might have played a role in our, in our current situation, but also we can action plan based on what we know for, for a brighter future. We can look at other people that have a similar genetic profile as we do who have found success. Well, what did they do? Right. So how can we how can we direct this knowledge towards a preferred outcome? And what are the practices? What are, what are the training exercises we need to do to get that same result as so many other people just like me have had? But that's not what we're seeing when we observe. And so maybe an example that we could give to make this concrete is, let's say, rather than a, and a bad objective would be patients will understand how genetics affect addiction. Right. Because, again, we have understanding there. It's passive. It's not demonstrable. Whereas we could change that to patients will identify the challenges that they have based on maybe personal biology and identify the parts of their lives that they can positively affect and change. And so now I can see that. I can see when patients talk to me as the group facilitator. I can see as patients talk to each other. Or I could see it, maybe they write it down and come up with some kind of worksheet that they show. But that identification part allows me to see, did they get it? And it lets the patient walk away with something. So a really smart facilitation technique that we train on is show the objective at the end as well as the beginning. So patients know where you're going. But then you look and say, hey, are you able to do this now? Have you identified your own risk factors and have you identified areas of your life that you can influence for the better to help you find recovery? And they can look at that and say, oh yes, we have accomplished that in this session today. It gives patients a sense of empowerment. It gives them a sense of progress and that leads to engagement, that leads to improved outcomes, makes they really see what they're getting as a value add out of the sessions Versus just walking out and saying, oh, well, we talked a lot today. I'm not really sure why, but I, I, you know, I heard a lot of information that's not as useful in the process. And to be, to be completely fair and realistic in a regular quote unquote session that we see, uh, it's 43 minutes of how are you doing today? And 12 minutes of the definition of genetics. Yeah. 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 The, the check-ins. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, we can maybe touch on that real briefly, right? So, I mean, usually what we see is just a, a round robin. People go around in a circle and they talk to someone, what, maybe they got a check-in question, maybe they got a topic for the day, maybe they show a, a video and they say, well, what do you think about the video? There is just a lot of very unfocused chat that happens within the therapeutic setting. And that's also backed up by the research, right? Dr. Kathleen Carroll did a lot of research around cognitive behavioral therapy and the delivery as such. And she would catalog about 80% of a therapeutic session as what she would consider chat. And by chat just means that was unfocused discussion with no particular aim and no particular clear connection to um, successful recovery capital skill building, which is... Exactly. That's, that's some very expensive chat. Yes. Right. So Absolutely. the goal is to move away from that, teach skill sets to therapists, clinicians, and counselors so that they are able to effectively take all this expertise because they have it, right? Again, they know the knowledge. They've learned it through their degrees, learned it through their licensing programs, learned it through shadowing other clinicians and people in their roles, but they've never been given the tool sets needed to really be effective around the skill building component. And yeah. so the more that we can do that with therapists, the more, the better the patients are going to be and the more successful our organizations are going to be. And that's really, I think the, the key message that 
I, I know both of us want to get across. <laughs> well, absolutely. And I think it's important for, you know, people listening to understand that, that there's more than one ways to do that. I mean, especially if we're, let, let's just take the same example of the genetics lesson, you know, um, the objective that, that you so eloquently put about identifying how it, uh, it is affecting our life now, but also identifying the areas that, that we can impact, right? You could do that by just talking at people and have them thinking about it, or you could split them up into, into small groups and have them talk to each other. I mean, think about how much dialogue, and now that's not just chat, that's meaningful dialogue. That's positive change talk. So you brought up Kathleen Carroll, but I think it's also important to bring up uh, William Miller's research about, about the talk time and that there's a direct correlation between positive patient change talk and their success in recovery. But perhaps more important for the clinician is there the, the less time the clinician spends talking, the fewer uh, patient resistant behaviors are seen throughout the session. So in fact, the clinician's job it gets much easier. There's less resistance from patients. The, the clinician has a much more opportunity to find out about their patients because rather than just sitting there in silence, they're all engaged in dialogue. They're all talking, right? They're all on task. They're all engaged. So yeah, again, it's, it, it's, not, it's not the curriculum. It's not the objective. It's not the, the framework. It's a little bit of all these things, but really it's how you run it. It's how it's delivered that's going to make the biggest impact for your patients. Right. That's a really good point. And so we talk about at the Institute all the time and in the trainings that you have to minimize the, the therapist talking time, right? We call it TTT, therapist talking time. And you're trying to maximize the patient talking time because that does two things. It engages in that process of change that Willie Miller has done a lot of research around. And so the more they're engaging in change talk, the better. And it also maximizes their practice. So when we think about procedural learning, whether we're talking about learning how to swim or learning our CBT skills around incremental goal setting, we have to practice, practice, practice for that to become an unconscious, automated, habituated process that we're just very, very good at. So by doing things like pair work and small group work, that allows patients to maximize it. And going back to a point that we talked about earlier, it prepares patients to be successful on their own in the real world when there's not gonna be a therapist there to support them. So they have all this benefit of having this therapist there to support them, right? And that person can facilitate well and go in and find out problem areas and highlight and focus and do you know, guided practice. But by allowing them to work in pairs and small groups, you're maximizing all these components that we know, neurologically speaking, not just from a learning standpoint, but from an effective recovery standpoint, have to be in place for them to be successful. And so maybe Andrew, you want to talk about this a little bit, but a misconception that we'll get within a group of trainees from a therapeutic standpoint can often be the fact that they need to be the center of attention or that they need to be directly involved just in case the patient has a difficult episode or they need to process something or they're the expert in the room. So they should be the ones sharing the information. How, how do you think listeners should be thinking about that when that's maybe a response that might come from their teams? Well, I, I can I can absolutely understand that. You know, I, I was in charge of leading groups for a very, very long time, and I wanted to be that important too. You know, and and I'm not saying that the therapist is not important; they absolutely are. I mean, they've got thousands of hours of training, therapeutic interventions, and the the thing is, is that they are there to monitor. And if a patient does have uh, needs a moment of process affordance, then then they're absolutely the expert that should take control of that situation. But the idea, again, that a patient cannot process with another patient or that a patient cannot work through something if the therapist is there listening or even if the therapist misses the conversation altogether because they're with someone else, it, it's just wrong. People have build relationships with others all the time. And once again, the, the therapist is not going to be there when they leave treatment. Right. And so we want to separate the therapist from the patient as much as possible. And we call this scaffolding support. So the therapist should get should give support as needed, but gradually be taking it away. Because, again, what's the goal here? The goal here is that the patient succeeds when they leave therapy. Right. And so we need to be creating that separation and allowing for that autonomy and that and that that self drive, because that's the goal at the end. Yep, that's exactly right. I think there's also a misconception that individual therapy is somehow better than group therapy. 
And that is not borne out in the research at all. The research shows that group therapy and individual therapy is at least on the same level. And there is also research out there that has shown group therapy to be more effective than individual therapy. So I think that needs to be really clearly communicated to the clinical team because often that misconception exists. And then we go back to maximizing the benefit of everyone in the room, right? And so if we've got the therapist that's talking to one person, and as we've already discussed, most of the other people are checked out. When someone else is talking, most other patients in the room are checking out. So now we've got one person getting some kind of effective therapy, and we've got 11 people that are getting nothing out of that session. And if the most of the session is this one-on-one -on -one chat, you know, going around in a circle, then most of the time throughout most of the session, most of the patients are not getting something of significant value out of it. And obviously that's a huge problem. And that's the problem that we're trying to solve is making sure that most of the patients get as much value as possible at all times. And one way to do that is through pair and small group work where they're learning from each other and then learning to be responsible and take accountability for their own progress and recovery, right? They're not giving it up to someone else. They're saying, hey, I'm in charge of this. And that's also a key component of effective adult learning. Adults want to be autonomous in their learning and that leads to more effective outcomes. And so by giving that autonomy to the patient, they're actually much more likely to be successful than if they're overly reliant on you know the therapist to help get them across the line. You're absolutely right, and in fact, that that's what Yalom advocated for the entire time. He accurately and eloquently explains the phases that groups go through. You know, the the forming, yeah, that's when the clinician establishes norms, right? The storming, with people are figuring it out and uh, figuring out each other, right? There's some conflict, then it normalizes, and you got the therapeutic alliance is established in the group setting. You know, and expectations are clear. But then you've got performing, right? That's the practice and the teamwork and the productivity. And you have it adjoining, which is like the reflection, what worked, what didn't, the feedback. In order, you actually have to let that happen. You, In order for those phases to, to move through their natural process, the clinician needs to take a step back. And I think that this is one of the biggest problems that we see is that Yolam, who's considered the, you know, the, the, the godfather of group therapy, even at the master's level in clinical courses, He's talked about in, in theory more than practice, right? I mean, where are clinicians today learning these delivery skills? Where are they learning effective facilitation on how to set up deliberate practice? I, I, I just, I, I don't see where, except for the Institute for the Advancement of Group Therapy. <laughs> you can go on YouTube and you can look at, at, I mean, these are groups where people know they're being filmed. In some cases, they're staged. And it's still, it's highlighting the exact problems that, we, that we've been discussing here. I love that you brought up Yalom because he does a very good job. And I think he has a high level of expertise around building a culture in a group therapeutic setting. And so when you look at his stages of the therapeutic kind of group process, that's what he's good at. But when you actually look at the way he delivers a session, it's still this one-on-one. -on -one. Now he does it a little bit better. He'll get the patients talking to each other. He identifies strengths or weak areas for a particular patient. And then says, okay, well, who else can comment on that? And then we'll get the patients talking to each other across the room. But it's still two patients talking and 11 other patients disengaged. Or if you look at like a Medicaid provider, Medicaid, sometimes you have 15 plus patients in a, in a room just because of the reimbursement and the way that that works, you're not able to keep group size as small. And so it becomes less and less effective for everyone, the bigger the group size gets, if it's all everyone in a circle and only one person talking at a time. And so I think that was the gap that Yalom had that, I, that we're solving well, for. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, I, I think Yalom was definitely, you know, revolutionary for group therapy at the time. But Nick, it's, it's been over 50 years. Yeah. No significant strides have been made in group therapy in over 50 years. Right. And we see what the relapse rates are. So, right. so something something does need to change. 
you know, and on, on the therapist side, again, like we've been saying, it's not the fact that therapists were taught some skills that they're not using. They were never taught this, right? There is not being knowledge disseminated or skills really more importantly being disseminated in the field. And that's why we often see a higher turnover rate among group therapists because they don't feel comfortable running groups. They don't feel confident or successful running groups. And they're, they're not confident or not feeling successful because they have not been given the tools that they need to be successful. And so this is where training for, for clinical staff really comes in. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Look, I, I've led groups where it's not going well. Oh, it's, it's a terrible feeling. It's like pulling teeth. Not only, you, you know, do I feel like a failure, you know, if, if the, if my participants aren't engaged, but it's just a miserable process. But conversely, when everything is going well, when, when it, when, when everyone's engaged, it can even be fun. And I know that some people are like, whoa, group therapy, th- think about where we are. Look, that's my, that's my entire point. There's some heavy, heavy stuff that gets dropped in group therapy, right? And again, for those moments of process affordance, the therapist should absolutely do what their training tells them, use their, use their common sense, their best judgment. But if it's not one of those instances and we can make the learning engaging, we can make the group fun, shouldn't we? Yeah. Isn't that better for everybody? (laughs) I agree. I mean, it doesn't always have to be fun, but no, it doesn't. But if it can be right. Oh my goodness. Right. It's like, it's like night and day. Look, I've, I've heard group, I've heard groups called career killers, right? I mean, even no matter who I'm, I've been talking to so many people like who run the, run the DOJ uh, or uh, just from all, all different avenues and, uh, and positions. And they say, they say the same thing. There are some people who absolutely thrive in groups. There are people who absolutely cannot stand groups and there are people that are just kind of like, eh, right. Or who are just not very good at them. Well, guess what? If, if we can help train and make those two uh, that are uh, lukewarm or, or totally turned off by groups, if we can get them up, fantastic. If those people who are already thriving in groups, if we can make them even better, I mean, this is a win, win, win. The patients benefit, the clinicians benefit, the organization benefits. And like I said, with the, with the statistics, society benefits. Yeah. It, it's such a transformation to really run an effective group. I mean, I was running a group, what God, probably about a month ago, just kind of showing some therapists that we were training examples of the technique in, in a live group. And I started off the group and it's tough because no one knows who I am. I'm this weird guy coming in, taking over for their usual therapist. And a lot of people don't want to be there in the first place. On top of that, I had a group of like 22 because one of the therapists had called out sick. <laughs> so they had to combine groups for the day, you know, and that happens. So I start off the group and you got these two guys that are real surly. One's like a real big dude. And we use, uh, we use, so in our therapy facilitations or training processes. We'll use things like balls or mascots or things like that as a way of kind of like a talking stick. So we'll use that to identify who's speaking, but also allows us as a facilitator to randomize the process, right? So you can make sure that other people are getting engaged when we're doing our didactic portion of groups or a feedback portion of group. And I had this guy, he just swats it back at me <laughs> like right off. And he goes, and I'm like, I'm like, not today. He goes, not today. You know, he's really angry. And 45 minutes later, as I wrap up the group, both him and this one other guy came up to me. He's like, they were like, that was the best session I've ever been part of. That was amazing. I really appreciate you coming in today. Thank you so much, man. And that's what can happen, right? If you run groups the right way, you can take that patient resistance and you can completely turn it around because we've got buy-in, we've got engagement, we've got value for the patients that they can clearly see. And so that's what we're trying to do. And that's what we want to happen. Absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, th- there are some great examples of, of, of techniques that, that we can see and, that, and you know, like uh, peer feedback opportunities, role play, you know, project based exercises when, you know, when, when small groups are together designing different recovery plans or different strategies they might use for potential situations outside. And then you can go up and you can get them into a mingle or uh, like a hot seat dialogue where you, you just give them these authentic practice situations that are under different contexts and conditions. Because again, I, I like to compare it to therapy, like being in, in boot camp, right? You know, you have to push people outside their comfort zone sometimes if you want to see growth, because you're, the therapist is not going to be able to hold their hand when they leave. They're going out to war. So you better get them ready while they're while they're in therapy. And again, 
if you can do it in a way that makes the process enjoyable, it keeps everybody busy, it keeps everyone engaged and focused, it does tremendous things for the whole group, the atmosphere of the group, the clinician. You can even start to see it permeate outside. You know what I mean? You know, afterwards, everyone will go out into the little common area and start smoking. We go out there afterwards. They're not usually ever talking about what they did in group. They are after our session. Right, right. And glad you brought up those specific techniques. And so we've covered a number of them, but just to kind of point out a couple. So small group and pair work is incredibly effective for all the reasons we've talked around procedural learning, engagement, allowing them to build capital skills that they can use on the outside. That ball technique I mentioned, you know, I didn't really explain it in that example, but we'll take a ball and we'll ask a question and we'll say whatever it is. You can just say, let's do a check-in. Tell me about how your day has been going or give me an example of a recovery capital skill or a CBT skill you used in the past week. Now, when we ask that, we don't say who we're talking to. We don't throw it to someone and say, hey, it's your turn. We ask that question. We look at everybody. And then what's happening in that group when that happens? Everyone's thinking about the answer because they don't know who we're going to throw it to, right? So everyone's engaged. Everyone's paying attention. And then we'll throw it out there. And it's such a simple little change in the way that you facilitate a, a group session, but it has tremendous impact because it completely changes it from, hey, Steve, tell me a CBT skill you use. And everyone else shuts down and stops paying attention because they know that Steve's turn to talk and they don't have to do anything versus we ask that question first, randomize the throw pattern. So really good example of a technique there. Role plays are, are critical, Andrew, that you mentioned, you know, role plays and project-based learning, you know, building a relapse prevention plan, talking about which groups you're going to attend when you go out walking through and practicing a uh, conversation that you plan to have with your mom, but using a sort of communication and I statements in those, those dialogues, like those are practical skills that are one demonstrable, but two highly valuable to the patient and really, really help them be successful once they get outside the group. Well, I really appreciate the time, Andrew, if someone wants to get in touch with you or the Institute, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can visit the Institute at uh, grouptherapycertification.com. Uh, I am very, very easy to find on LinkedIn, uh, Andrew Bort. That's B-O-R-D-T. Well, thank you again for the time. For all the listeners out there, this is Recovery Executive Podcast, uh, and we'll catch you next time.